Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Evidence-Based Therapist, where you know the tagline, you know but if it. you don't, Let's just review it all together now. We read. Oh, dang it. Is (laughs) it where we read or does it start with we read? Are you saying this? Okay, it's where. It is where. Okay, let's restart. So, so all together now. Where? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Not the whole thing. Okay, sorry. I did that on purpose. Where we read so you don't don't have to. to, But we would would really really love it if you you did. did. I think that's the most succinct that was parenthetical good. we've ever done. Yeah. And parenthetical. Closed caption. Yeah. Well, for all you listeners out there, thanks for joining us for another episode. It's Bridger and I, yet again. Holding down the fort. Holding down the fort with yet some another. Friends. With some friends. We always, always have friends. We are always invoking the presence. We are always with. Psychological and spiritual presence of our friends, which are the people that we're reviewing their articles. Yes. Um, this time... We are deep in a series. Yeah. Right now. From our fourth, friends. Fourth episode? I think fourth so. episode. Yeah, Something we've done like two two parters yeah. every time. There's still more to come. There's <laughs> there's actually a lot more to come. Uh, this one's called, again, just to review the small world organization of large scale brain systems and relationships with subcortical structures. Authors Koziel, Barker, Joyce, and Harin. If you haven't listened to the first part, um, Go ahead and go yeah. listen to the, just the last episode. Yeah, um, just a brief, spontaneous synopsis, unprepared, of why this series. We've never done something like this before. Mm-hmm. We turned one article into a series, but we've never done multiple articles in a series. Yeah. So why? We've been talking about neuroscience quite a bit because that's a bend that mm-hmm. I think we share. Yeah. And what relevance it has to psychotherapy. A lot of claims out there that neuroscience is maybe the answer or that we shouldn't look at it at all. And yeah, so how do science we... science or humanities. Yeah. Yeah. Shouldn't be talked about or included. And what do we do as practitioners then working with humans every day and ourselves being human with this entire field filled with multiple sub-disciplines that are giving a spotlight and new discoveries into the functional and biological connectivity of our physiology. What do we do with those findings? Mm -hmm. How do we make sense of them? And this series in particular is one of perhaps the most salient that we've come across in talking about and clearing up what I would say are some of the conceptual divergences within our field of understanding are we talking about brain parts like are there actual little parts in our brain that give way to different connections and different functions or are we more so looking at uh, entire kind of fields or systems or uh, you know different networks that give way to specific behaviors functions connections etc And what relevance, again, does that have for how we understand both our internal connection with self and our environment and then also with other people who are themselves complex Mm -hmm. systems? Yeah. And I I love that these authors coming from the practice of neuropsychology are 
in in that question is it are we talking brain parts or are we talking these kind of amorphous systems, systems. in the brain that yeah. at different levels do different things and their answer would be yes to both with the emphasis on we need to start looking at emergent systems mm. because so much of neuroscience and clinical neuropsychology has looked at neuroanatomy and modular mm -hmm. dissection dissecting principles of the brain so mm. just looking at you know the amygdala the hippocampus the striatum the you know the prefrontal cortex all mm -hmm. of these kind of catchy buzzword brain parts looking at what they do but now we're into an evolution of the neuroscience yeah. which is saying none of those brain parts do in isolation so in order to have a correct conceptualization of the brain we have to kind of look at it from a uh, both and mm. we are looking at parts but we're also looking at the functional connectivity between parts yeah. that then gives way to which from the very outset we've said that's what we're concerned with totally you know you yeah. and i are not biological uh science experts you know we're not working with these in dissection labs and observing different not impairments with stroke patients or yeah. anything yeah God forbid rats, you know. <laughs> don't get, don't invoke punks up here. <laughs> we'll have to talk about how he treats his animals with care. I take care of my rats. It's an ongoing joke. It is. That Bridger and I carry. It's not a those. joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Pongsep, if you've ever listened to him or read any of his works, there's at least on a 10-minute section or a 20-page <laughs> section <laughs> where he is talking and what it really feels like the is ethical, he's combating yeah. PETA, yes. <laughs> talking all, about how ethically he treats the animals and the rats that he uses. And how, from an, a research standpoint, we're doing it now. <laughs> so we're just going to give the listeners From a research standpoint, it is ethically responsible and necessary for us to observe yes, yeah. the functional and biological connectivity of lower mammalian species yes, yes. because that's how we learn about our systems. Yeah. Because, you know, we're not gonna, <laughs> I who's gonna forgot how we got off on that. Well, I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens. And, and I'm glad you did because Ponksep will probably be the reason, in my mind. Yeah, the reason we got off on that is we were talking about how we are concerned with the functional mm. aspect of yeah. our neurophysiology and you know interpersonal neurobiological yeah. systems yeah and and i think we could read a lot of articles and present it to listeners in such a way where it it has this like lulling effect of a language you can't understand you just sort of fall asleep to yeah and i think we're more concerned on this transition of how do we understand the complexity yeah of the therapeutic process and the healing process that yeah. we're all going through as humans how do we understand that with the wealth of knowledge that some of these researchers are like spending their whole life their whole studying life. Yeah. like the depths of functional neuroanatomy and connectivity mm -hmm. but it's in a way that never really quite crosses over into yeah we've talked about this before you and i of the the translative responsibility of mm. a lot of this work that we're doing and putting together this kind of large literature review that is the podcast um it's important information and i i love the idea of evoking etymology and language because how important it is for us to understand what another culture might say mm. about it their experience as humans and existing in their time and place and context 
for us to just say we're not going to learn from that because we can't understand the language. You know, we as humans naturally develop translative frameworks mm -hmm. to understand um, just in general. And so why aren't we doing that with, with neuroscience and counseling? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Do you remember the metaphor that was used in the last episode? Oh, I do. So, because I feel like that's a nice transition into mm. how these writers are doing exactly what we're talking about with neuroscience and taking very complex research findings and translating it to very digestible understandings and symbols for people to, yeah. to grab onto. Mm -hmm. What they use is this idea that you have to produce or you have the desire to produce a product. Hmm. And if you and I were going to design something. Like in business. You're talking yeah, about like. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah like, separate from neuroscience. Like the metaphor of the business world. Right. Uh, we both have a product. Maybe hmm. we invented, I don't know, a pen that is good. Yeah. So we have this idea. We know how to make the pen, but we don't know how to get the molds. We don't know how to market it. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to sell it. To source every part of it. And, yeah, that's not yeah, our and then focus. The, the transition into selling it, that's another leap. That Totally. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to connect with other people who have expertise in marketing, creation. sales. Yeah, marketing, sales, and then the kind of ongoing upkeep of production. Right. Each of those teams that we're connected with is crucial to this product being sold to the public mm -hmm. that your brain operates in basically the same way yeah where these functional hubs and these large-scale brain systems that hold these functional hubs are working together in specialized ways processing information differently so that they can come together and produce a quote-unquote product mm -hmm. whether that be a thought a behavior a response an emotion homeostatic function an emotion yeah you name it your brain is doing it through connection between parts yeah that's why it's really important and this is where the whole kind of thrust of the series of articles comes from that we talk about our interconnection between systems and their subservient parts um, we can't just look at the insula and expect it to give us information about the the body's homeostatic range and balance and space, we have to look at what is the insula doing in its connection with other parts and the overall function of the brain as a whole in an experience-dependent development mm. to give us usable information about the body in space-time. Yeah. yeah, and we talked about a lot of beautiful things last session about how that then gives, how the brain's organization gives way for ongoing relearning yeah. based on memory yeah and, and also current experience yeah like you were talking about the pen analogy you know if we launched the product and we had you know x amount of units sold the job for a business that hopes to keep on going isn't over just mm. when the first wave of the product goes out the first generation yeah maybe then the people using the pen have feedback for mm. its shape its color it's you know the ink type the the ballpoint type all of these different things down to the size. Well, then we could re-invoke the connections between the developers, the creators, the marketers, the salespeople, and talk about this feedback that we're getting from the environment or from our users and what modifications should be made to every level of the pen's development and sale and delivery. Yeah. 
wait, are you talking about pens? Are you talking about human beings learning through experience? You can't see me on the recording, but I'm doing a lot of like shifty shoulder work. (laughs) Shoulder movement. Shoulder work. (laughs) Shoulder work to uh, like, you know. Insinuate. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, that was a long way of just saying yes. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, and I think that's so important because then moving into the second half of this article, one of the things that they do is they kind of, well, they don't kind of, they lay out what they call are the six principles for the development of these large scale brain systems. So six principles that are important in understanding how these large scale brain systems with their, the functional hubs held within them, Mm -hmm. how they develop. Which the work that they cite, I just need to give a quick shout out. Um, the work that they cite is one that I deeply admire, not necessarily the author and the, the type. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the type of work that it was, which is a, uh, meta literature review or meta systematic analysis, uh, in a publication called trends in cognitive science. And this type of work I just really love Hmm. because it's looking at so much of the disparate work that seems, you know, sometimes contradictory and unconnected or disconnected. And this researcher was putting it together saying, actually, there are some emerging overlaps that could be uh, conceptual principles mm. for our discussion that could clear up a lot of the dissonance that the field has. What do you all think about this uh, as I reintroduce it as six principles? Yeah. That type of scholarship is just right up my alley. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what we get so jacked on is yep. this giant synthesis of seemingly disparate ideas. Yeah. How big can we make Conclusions. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah. Big and small. Like Big and at the small. same time. Because like they're both. Wide scope synthesized down into digestible mm-hmm. pieces. Love Beautiful. It. Yes. Good I will job. say the second half of this article, one of this is just my my perspective on it. It felt like these principles, and I'm sure it was an editorial need, as you you and I are both well aware of. And yep. in the world of publications, you yep. have to stick within a character limit, usually. Um, unless you're just so Alan awesome. Short. Yeah, unless you're Alan Short, you can write a 50-page forward. Um, you can just do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. So these principles are said, and if you've read the article, you, you can empathize with us, is that they're, they're, these principles are said, but not fully like Elaborated fleshed out. Or, yeah. They do give some really cool like little one-off statements or comments based on research that I think are really kind of digestible little cues that therapists can use and take away. Um, but, but it is admittedly brief. Very brief. Yeah. 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 And and much more nuanced, I think. I mm. think that's then where they, and they even allude to it in one of the sections where they talk about uh, subcortical networks. It's really like the whole next article is just about that. Um, subcortical networks and the cerebellum. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they flesh it out more and more with the right. other articles. Right. It is brief and it is um, limited, but it's still super good. Yeah. And it's really, and I think the awareness of the entire series is really important in that because just standalone, it just seems like, well, that kind of felt like it just wrapped it up really quick. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know, there's does. so yeah. much to be said, but then it just goes on with, you know, seven paragraphs that end the work sounds good but yeah. if you have awareness of what's coming next yeah. you see that this this is sort of just a summary uh and a organizing summary at that to then launch into the next loop on yeah those subcortical connectivities yeah 
the the first point I feel like is a good uh, review of the first half of the article with the last article we did. Mm-hmm. Um, the first general principle they talk about is that these large scale brain structures, which is the first article that we reviewed, that the brain has these seven large scale brain structures. That, systems, right? Or systems. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, large scale brain systems that. Um, functionally orient to the world in different ways to process information and help the the brain and the body maintain a sort of homeostasis as regularity or constancy. Um, the first principle is that these large-scale brain systems are characterized by the inherent small world formation and organization of hubs. These Hubs within these um, large-scale brain systems perform even more specified Mm. um, tasks or have more specified orientations towards the world. And it's through those specializations that these large-scale systems can work together to help us live and process information in the way we need. Yeah. We didn't talk about this before we started recording, but maybe we can use that. I like the pen analogy the one they use is a neuro assessment battery, which yeah. is a little bit hard. Like that's still pretty <laughs> a, like you know, niche. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like everyone knows like what a pen is. <laughs> and, like, and, if you don't. Yeah. It, Google it. It's a writing utensil. Yeah, you can. Very similar to a pencil. Very similar. Almost like it's super simple. <laughs> super similar, <laughs> but some key differences for sure. Uh, but use that analogy to apply each of these six principles. Mm. Because what principle one sort of underscores is the ongoing uh, development and progressional development Mm. of these large-scale brain systems in their small world organization. So for each of those pieces of that analogy, if the plan is to move past the single product development and delivery, uh, meaning the organization, the human, uh, continues on living, mm-hmm. then there's going to be this process of refinement and uh, even um, personnel connectivity discussion. Like hmm. the content developer, or the, the product developer is going to talk more with the salespeople to see how we can uh, understand this product and actually communicate it to the public. So there's going to be this ongoing developmental refinement over the course of the life of the partnership or the connection that influences and structurally augments or shapes uh, and functionally augments or shapes the respective small world organizations or, or hub connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the things to note is that they, they're they interested again in how our biology gives way to our psychology. So they're in looking in the section at the development of these uh, large-scale brain systems, they noted in the last section that um, at 20 weeks in, mm. during the gestational period, there's already studies that are seeing functional connectivity between these large-scale brain systems. This, this, sec- this first principle in the latter half of the article about these large-scale brain systems being um, organized in these small world constructions um, goes on to talk about how as... As early as two years, these functional hubs within these large-scale brain systems are are fully developed. They're from that point then in a ongoing process of specialization. Mm-hmm. So very early on, 20 weeks gestational, you have development and functional connectivity 
starting, then up into two years, you have this full range of development that then moves into greater levels of specialization. That's another principle that comes, uh, we'll talk about that in a couple principles later, but Mm -hmm. just wanting to know how early these functional hubs and large-scale brand systems are developing and beginning to specialize. To me, this is like a beautiful, and we emphasize this so much in, in our trainings, is the the fact that your brain takes such granular bits of sensory, mm. motor, affective uh, stimuli and starts to build these massive skyscrapers of psychology and experience is crazy and and that you're doing that from so early on Mm -hmm. i think there's a ton of old writings you can read in in early um, medical fields and even early neurology about the seemingly like blankness of the child development like children really don't have a complex psychological life Mm -hmm. and what we're learning through studying the brain further and further in these functional non-invasive studies is that man from so early on infants and children have a very complex psychological experiential mm-hmm. life and that we we continue using the templates early on in life to develop how we understand the world mm-hmm. i think sometimes because we can't explicitly look or talk about the first two years of our life yeah. is like a common trope. Like no one can remember the first two years of their life that we think that it's almost like a... Just a, an abyss of... Yeah, it's like a free zone. Like if, if <laughs> something bad happens, you're good because you won't remember Don't it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, no. Like the brain... Perhaps the most important. <laughs> yeah, the brain is using that time to develop and specialize at the most fundamental level, yeah. this awareness of the world. And, and that's why... <clears throat> excuse me. That's why... Uh, I'm now because we mentioned shore. I'm just like my mind is just starting to fill with the work. But that's why a dynamic and attuned environment is so essential hmm. in that early two years because that is what's going to establish the largest and most secure or, and or resourced uh, hardware that's going to go into the functional connectivity of that system. Yeah. So you don't want you know the most stable being least you know uh, arousing from an energy standpoint and the calmest environment because that doesn't prepare that organism how to handle dis-ease or mm-hmm. hypertension or or you know the experience of something quite you know overwhelming in their environment what you want is the most dynamic and attuned uh, kind of balance for that early 2 years because that's what's yeah. going to shape those connections for resilience yeah when well, i love that you bring in sure cuz they even talk about uh, to give an example of this small world organization of large-scale brands. Which systems. is interesting that they jump to the frontal parietal network. I was just, what? that was something interesting. Yeah, what me. feels interesting well, about so, that? Well, sorry to take that away no, from no, no, you, but no. you were talking about the example that they give, which is in the last s- system that the first article introduced. It's sort of mm-hmm. given way as like, this is the eventual developmental progression after we talk about the default mode network and the visual and mm-hmm. the you know sensory motor and all these proceeding uh, from subcortical to neocortical. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that they then go to the left-right hemisphere. Perhaps that was because it's the easiest to understand. Like it's- Well, yeah, I think- Very I think intuitive. If, yeah, if you're looking at, if you're looking at how these large-scale brand systems within themselves have a 
separation into these small world functional hubs. Mm-hmm. Hemisphere is a very hemispheric it's differentiation. Like like, is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very kind of basic. It's apparent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and much easier to study right. um, based on stroke patterns and yeah. um, lesion studies. Lesion studies, yeah. all, all kinds of different reasons. But I do love that they talk about how the frontal parietal network as this like attention directing network that orients towards guiding and directing behavior their identification with there's a difference between the left hemisphere frontal parietal network and the right and they make an interesting um, comment about the right hemisphere of the frontal parietal network Um, what did they uh, while recruiting the dorsal attention network mm-hmm. was critically involved in task situations that were unfamiliar, new, or novel. In other words, requiring high demands on the attentional systems required for task orientation and the generation of novel problem-solving strategies. The left hemisphere then in the frontal parietal network was seen to be oriented more towards low load Familiar. Yeah, familiar tasks, yeah. cognitive um, Not taking tasks. a lot of metabolic energy to process. Yeah, which like in therapy, that's like, that's so brilliant. Yeah. Of, like there has to, and I love that you bring in, sure, like if we're going to traverse novelty, which as therapists, our whole job <laughs> is to help Introduce people and... go through novelty yeah. because yeah. they're saying I've gone through life with this left hemispheric way of just doing the same thing over and over. Not, it's not questioning working schemas, again. not questioning yeah, yeah. templates that are helping me understand my mm-hmm. world, just operating within them. Yes, I'm doing what I know that I've done before that has worked, even if I don't like it, mm-hmm. I'm doing what works in some way. Mm-hmm. And our whole job as a therapist is to introduce novelty and provide safety. Mm-hmm. And I love that you bring in Shore as like this, if the brain is, if the, left frontal parietal network is going to learn a new normal and even be open to learning like yeah. i like that yeah that you've brought that in a couple times during this series if, if we're even going to be open to novelty mm. that that kind of emerges from a experience of novelty with attunement mm-hmm. yeah without it we would not be open to it yeah i mean that's alan Schur's whole work is that relational right unconscious hemisphere needs relational safety and attunement in order for the brain to then shoot over Mm -hmm. sensory information from the right to the left to be processed. Right. Um, And I I do love that you evoke sure and then they talk about that as an example of how these functional systems or these large-scale brain systems have functional functional hubs underneath that are in like another deeper layer of division. Mm -hmm. But you can see the the human correlates, like zooming out from the brain into like entire animate operation. Mm-hmm. You know, in the pen analogy, if we have a lot of money invested in this version of the pen succeeding, we may not be open to criticism of this version of that pen because it's like, no, I, I I'm not really trying to find that feedback. I want this pen to succeed, so I'm just going to further develop this iteration of the pen. That would be akin to the large-scale brain mm. system of the left frontal parietal network saying, I'm not open to the novelty of the right hemisphere. I'm just trying to focus on this process that I know yeah. I can develop. I know it can work, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to push forward with that. Mm-hmm. But in a business that would hope to continue on and adapt in a ever-changing and diversifying environment, 
we need that interconnectivity between mm -hmm. the left and the right to say, well, let's get really good at developing this version of the pen, but let's also learn from the market that's using the pen and yeah. how we can also sell the pen more effectively and get it into places that it needs to mm -hmm. be. Yeah, I, I, and that, that to me is just such a beautiful pendulation of the brain as... Pendulation. Pendulation. No pun intended. No pen intended. <laughs> oh, um, <I> uh, <laughs> <laughs> another iteration of how the brain is is doing this, and I'll evoke another person, Dan Siegel, this integrative process of linking and differentiating, holding information that has already been gathered, and bringing in new information that changes the whole organization hmm in a way that's more complex, mm. but in that way, if it's more complex, it's, it's healthier, it's more dynamic. Mm -hmm. And they even talk about how this novel information from this frontal parietal right um, hemisphere is necessary for efficient adaptation throughout life. Yeah. Um, and, and so first point, I don't know if you have more to say on that, but I kind of- We should move on. Yeah, they, yeah. The, the point of that first point is to say that these large-scale branch systems have functional hubs that have very specified. Um, I like I like the idea of they have specified postures towards the world. Yeah. World instead of they have very specified tasks or jobs or roles. It's like no, they just they see the world differently. Right. Um, and so then they have something different to contribute to the rest of the brain. Yes. So the second general principle of large-scale brain system development concerns the ongoing segregation of functional circuits. Um, so again, we're sort of developing this narrative and story um, as we look at what does it mean to move from large-scale brain systems that are organized into hub-based specialization throughout the lifespan. Well, one of the principles that the literature review uh, discovered is that there are an there's an ongoing segregation of these functional circuits. And this is one of the principles that is characteristic of the developing brain throughout the lifespan, that mm -hmm. as life goes on, segregation increases. Meaning, you know, let's use that left-right hemisphere again, that in, in processes and functions that the left hemisphere has learned work and are generalizable enough to maintain homeostasis, um, it will, again, close itself off to the input of other systems. Yeah. So that's a that's an example of segregation to where the left hemisphere says, I don't need the energy that you're trying to put in over here from this other system. Keep that over there. I can do it my, myself in this hub. I don't yeah. need this large kind of correspondence of, yeah. of, of extracurricular hubs. Yeah. You know, interestingly, my brain goes to... Um, this zoom zoom in, zoom out process that the brain has to do by going deeper and specializing and fine-tuning these mm -hmm. kind of deep functional hubs and then zooming out and making sure those hubs are connected to the to the wider picture of the brain, mm. these large-scale systems. Um, my brain interestingly goes to like how that is showing up in our world and in our environment. Mm. Um, I think of um, the role genetics and genetics studies and our diving so deep into genetics has actually been like a core component of racial justice movements. Oh, yeah. And how doctors who are zooming so far in and finding, quote unquote, like um, uh, functional segregation in their awareness of like, what are these genes like 
like at the most fundamental level, like doing and what is their relationship is then being zoomed out and pulled into this like more broad world, worldly or like cosmic level, social Mm -hmm. level to say like, oh, this can then be applied to our relationship as human cultural systems to each other. And so like, whoa, like this whole idea of racism and like we need to change a lot of views because from a scientific point of genetics, like we're learning like race is not like it's not there. Mm. It, this is like a thing that is socially constructed mm-hmm. so we can change, we can shift. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, yeah. I think that's a great example of reflecting on discoveries from neuroscientific inquiry to you know, the social neuron theory mm. is coming to mind of like, yeah, well, we can actually learn from how our own system orients to the world to better understand what might be going on in our world around us socially and culturally to help us understand here's ways that we can create uh, a concept I've been talking about with some people um, safe enough to be brave. Mm. Like when the system is balanced enough and attuned enough that it can take the leap to open to nuance and novelty that maybe then we can find a space to increase our connected potential yeah. and our functional output. Yeah. I love that uh, a healthy life trajectory is the one that is doing this like zoom in, zoom out, zoom mm-hmm. in, zoom out, zoom out. And every time you zoom in, you're, you can zoom out farther. Yeah. And oh, I hopefully love throughout life, you're, you're zooming into these deeper parts and then zooming out to these mm-hmm. wider parts and having that integrative experience differentiating Mm -hmm. but also linking yeah one of the quotes that i really like from this um that this is a really short paragraph on the second general principle but uh that second sentence Mm. however there's a critically important shift from short-range connections in children to long-range connections in adults this allows for the recruitment of greater regions and areas of cortex presumably supporting higher level cognitive functions and the potential imposition of top-down regulation of behavior when necessary. Hmm. So as we grow and mature, we increase our capacity to give conscious reflection on our behavior, emotions, experience, and the appraisal, and actually make changes to, you know, have a throttle on our impulses, for Mm -hmm. example. You know, in the pen analogy, to receive negative feedback on the design of the pen rather than to just say, well, screw that person, we don't need their money, to instead open up to, oh, that's interesting that Mm -hmm. you had this experience with the pen, let me consider more deeply and take seriously what you are saying about the pen and maybe I can make some alterations. Yeah, yeah, I can see it from a higher level and a deeper level as you develop. Right. Yeah. Instead of be threatened by it or otherwise not be able to integrate the feedback. Yeah, which I think goes into the the third um, principle where they they um, they talk about how the changing la- landscape and the reconfiguration of these large scale brain systems or the development of them is based upon subcortical to cortical connectivity. Mm-hmm. So how we hold and maintain an ongoing kind of like self story from our experience across time changes how these large-scale brain systems develop. Mm. So if I have a lot of experiences that feel from my subcortical network of my connection to the world right now into these large-scale brain systems in this cortical zones, if there's no ongoing connection with how I have experienced things 
am experiencing things and will, will experience things, there's a limit of how much that landscape can dynamically shift in these large-scale brain systems because a healthy shifting of this like neuronal landscape mm -hmm. is based on how much my subcortical networks, my embodied lived experience of being in the world right now is connecting to these large-scale brain structures yeah. that are holding information of how my body has connected mm -hmm. to the world mm -hmm. and how that could be beneficial for right now. Yeah, and it's something that comes up in couples therapy a lot, not are you connecting, but how well are you connecting? Mm. Um, you know, because it's easy to justify that we are connecting by what well, we have, you know, a 30 minute discussion at the end of the day. Yeah. So we're connecting. Yeah. Like, no, like what is the quality, nep nature and depth of that connection? Yeah. Uh, I like that in the analogy of the subcortical to cortical connectivity. Yeah. And what is that doing to further specialize and develop uh, these large-scale brain systems. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. We. I feel like we say a lot in different settings to many different people. Like it's really not what you do; it's how much of you does what you do. Right. Like if if you're doing something, but only your default mode network is a part of the process. Just reacting. You'll just you'll do it as an autopilot process based on the past, but you're not open to new stimuli. You're not integrating new information. There's like yeah. There's no nuance yeah. or novelty. Yeah. yeah. There's, it's a limited connection mm -hmm. versus if there's more of you in that process. If your subcortical network feels safe enough to tap into more of your cortical networks yeah. and connect more broadly, then you will have a more integrated and dynamic experience. Yeah. Feel and I, more connected. I love unquote. that they note that in the development of these uh, connections and their subsequent maps or paths, that what really helps these uh, systems develop and complexify in their connections is um, what? Are they, how do they say it? Are heterogeneous uh, because they are dependent upon the unique experiences of the developing brain. Mm -hmm. Key, kind of highlight the word unique there. Yeah, that they're not what we expected before, mm. or that we have experienced before, or that we expected to find now based on the past. It's mm -hmm. unique. It's yeah. new. It's novel. Yeah. Assuming an integration of the of the. Uh, large-scale brain systems. Yeah. yeah, which goes into the next point, the fifth point, which is um, all about the dynamic pruning of functional circuitry. Um, they talk about the relationship between the functional parietal network and the uh, default mode network and how the default, in general, a highly active default mode network is related to weaker cognitive control through the frontal parietal network and superior cognitive performance is related to a stronger frontal parietal network activation and a weaker DMN recruitment. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing is there's this interplay of like um, almost prioritization of activity of these large-scale brain systems based on what the human brain and body is experiencing in any given moment. Yeah. And my brain goes to like Hebb's axiom mm -hmm. is a really like good um, additive to this section of like neurons that fire together, wire together. And um, in that wiring, if there's more activation more consistently, that means the brain will prune mm -hmm. where, where deactivation or unactivation is happening mm -hmm. and bring that metabolic resourcing where the energy is needed. Mm -hmm. So if I'm sitting in my default mode network, and this is, this is not possible, but if I'm just sitting in it all the time mm -hmm. and there's this prioritization of that network, my frontal parietal network, this 
highly um, um, cognitively oriented in, in terms of like oriented more towards high um, metabolic requirements or high energetic requirements for processing. Yeah. Then my brain is going to take resources from that frontal parietal network, prune dynamically based on my experience and start to channel that to boosting and bolstering mm. a more specialized default mode network. Yeah. Um, I think for in therapy for clients, like one way this comes up is I'll talk about how, you know, sometimes the brain makes a very vital decision instead of learning a new potential or a new behavior or a new possibility. It, it tries to save energy by just fine tuning the way it, it has done it in the past. Mm -hmm. And it will just continue to fine-tune these strategies yeah. or these coping mechanisms or these addictions yeah. or these, you name it, it'll just try to fine-tune and fine-tune and fine-tune yeah. in order to save energy so that it can go farther and last so, uh, longer. example from my life is coming up where my dad is, um, you know, I'm from the Midwest, uh, blue-collar, working-class family. Mm -hmm. um, my dad is a stonemason. And because of that, and both my parents worked in construction, and so growing up, there was, you know, not a lot of things that we did, um, like vacations or, you know, nice house, anything like mm -hmm. that. Like, most of the money was spent on the things they needed for work. Mm -hmm. Like, dad would invest in new masonry equipment, new tools, new things like that, because every day he was at the mercy of the efficiency and the uh, durability of these tools and mm -hmm. he would always say like never skim on the things you need the most mm -hmm. and that right there like i just was reminded of as you said that like the things that he relied on the most every single day he wanted to make sure were nice and worked well yeah and that's exactly it like when you're using it constantly it's going to get better and it's yeah. going to need to be better because you're using it so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your brain will dynam dynamically prune the vacation fund. Yeah, exactly. In support of Great. The, yes. the work fund. Like, yeah. let's maintain the work fund. We'll dynamically prune from that vacation fund. Yep. Yeah. I love that. That's a great example. Yeah. What a good brain. Yeah. Just throwing in these love things. That. Yeah. yeah. So then the... The fifth one. The fifth principle really talks about the amygdala and um, in it kind of the the main point of their um, connection with the amygdala and the amygdaloid system is that the amygdala p seems to play this important role in the transition between subcortical networks, those communications and processing, yeah. and these large-scale brain systems. I just wish we could, I'm just like, I just wish we could just recognize it as a field, as a switchboard instead of the alarm system. Yeah. Because it's not just about bad things like the alarm yeah. system happens when things are like breaking in or there's a fire or there's carbon dioxide like it's all bad things but the amygdala's chief role <laughs> is interconnection yeah it's processing connection subcortically into cortical relevance yeah well we've talked and to backwards, about yeah we've talked about in past episodes that the amygdala is not so much the place of threat detection right as much as it is a communication to other brain regions it is the alarm 
It's not the sensor. Right, right. These the subcortical networks are the sensor. Mm-hmm. The amygdala is just this important transitional hey, getting the signal. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's some stuff that seems like it's Relevant. important to let you know yeah. is threatening out there. Yeah. And and to fire accordingly and, yeah. and to engage. HBA access. Yep. There it is. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 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 So in thinking Start of lighten it up. These large scale brain systems as cortical regions and cortical uh, specializations of energy and information processing, the amygdala then serves a functional um, hub of connection between these subcortical and cortical regions. This then moves us into the sixth and final developmental principle, um, which links hyperconnectivity and hypoconnectivity of these functional hubs within these large-scale brain systems with neurodevelopmental disorders. Oh, yeah. This is where they like really kind of make the jump into clinical neuropsychology of saying based what like why does in in one way or another why or how does this connect to counselors and clinicians? In every way. And it's yeah. that the hyper hyperconnectivity and hyperactivation or hypoconnectivity and hypoconnection activation or activation yeah, yeah. of brain regions gives way <laughs> To the emergent process. What we call disorders. Disorders or behaviors or experiences. Which I think that's an important distinction. Like the brain doesn't know it's a disorder. Like it's, well, this is how I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. I mean, yeah. <laughs> to call it a dis, yeah, a disorder. It's an, it's an order. It's a spe- specified. Supremely organized, segregated, and special. It's very order. ordered. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It is extremely ordered. It's, that's yeah. why you're so frustrated. Yeah. Is it's rigid. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. One well, and. and and I love that idea that the brain, I think we stress this so much in our trainings and people feel so much relief when we say from it. this posture <laughs> yeah. of diagnoses is that no diagnosis is a, is a disorder in and of itself. Right. It's actually a very adaptive ordering of firing that the brain and the body have learned to utilize to stay safe enough in their world. Mm-hmm. And if, if we as therapists can come with that sort of posture then we can hopefully maintain an element of curiosity and safety to say, why does this ordering make sense Mm -hmm. based on where you are, where the client is, and where the client has been, what they have experienced in the past. From there, then we have all of the key ingredients, like what we talked about in memory reconsolidation, to then begin to suggest or invite the brain to start making some adjustments, some shifts in pattern, Um, firing and recognition. Yeah. And this, and I'm going to mention this burgeoning area of interest neuropsychologically, but I want to say it's not, it is by no means the only one where this is relevant. It's just the most, what I would say is like one of the most hot areas in the research right now of like in the autism spectrum disorder. Mm. When we look at that and the chicken of the egg or of, you know, is this genetic or pre-existing physiologically or is it learned and conditioned in some response and like no i mean you'll find people that will take large leaps but i would still say that that i'm not sure that's the most useful question yeah um like what would we learn (laughs) because i think there's a compulsion to want to blame it on one or the other but that's one of the areas where we start to see this conversation of hypo or hyper connectivity become really, really relevant. Again, it's not the only one. This article and the series it's within talk about how in every single presentation you're seeing some combination of hyper hypo connectivity and mm-hmm. uh, activity in the brain. 
But this is one where we are very concerned about that right now as a field yeah. um, because we're learning more about autism and about neurodivergence just as a, as a whole, including ADHD and uh, ADD. But within that, you're looking at hyper and hypo connectivity mm -hmm. uh, in these various hubs, which then give way to imbalance in this large-scale brain system connectivity, uh, which is where you start to see real kind of malfunctions or breakdowns in what we call normal behavior and yeah. uh, homeostat homeostasis. Yeah. 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 I love, I love how it, it doesn't. And like you were saying with autism, like we're not to the place where we have every answer. I don't think that's even going to be the point of any discovery. <laughs> yeah. Um, neuroscientifically, but we are at a space of recognizing that our whole experience of being human is emergent. And if it's emergent, then we can we can do that zoom in, zoom out process together in therapy yeah. and foster increased self-awareness, increased social connection and a, adaptive information processing mm -hmm. that can help people engage their world in more safe and integrating ways. Mm -hmm. And we don't always have to know whether the chicken or the egg came first. Sometimes it's just a matter of knowing that both are there and they're contributing. Yeah. The egg is a part of the process. The chicken was a part of the process. Which one feels more right to zoom into, but then to zoom out and take that information and apply it to the other. Yeah. Another just quick example that I really enjoy just from the world is studying a forest. Hmm. A forest is not made up of one type of tree, yet all of them are essential in the balance of the ecosystem that makes up the forest. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the analogy of, you know, don't miss the forest for the trees or vice versa, you, I think that really adds to the specialization that you're not just looking at one type of tree that makes up that forest. When you mm -hmm. look at a picture of a forest, you're seeing such a diversity of plant life, mm -hmm. really that is what's making up that larger scene of the forest. Mm. So when we look at a brain and we talk about a function of that brain or something that it comes out of it or that we make of it, we're not just looking at one structure and one function. We're looking at the, you know, the confluence of all of it coming together mm. to form an emergent behavior, thought, emotion, etc. Yeah. Um, that's a really important posture that I think if we just as therapists just sat with that what this person is experiencing and how I'm making sense of it is not the result of one thing, one structure, one system, etc. This is how their entire system developed throughout their life is making sense of it and responding to it now. Yeah. Yeah. I love that that idea that it's always more complicated than we think. And at the same time, it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Large and, and small. Yes. And, and from a perspective of this article, there's, a, there's an element of that zoom in, zoom out process that gives way to just like neurodevelopment is, neurodevelopmental disorders become very complex. Yeah. Incredibly. And very easy, very yeah. simple, very quite uh, understandable mm -hmm. in one way or another. Very approachable. Yeah, um, yeah I, I hope listeners continue to follow along this train of thought that we started at the first of this series with neurosciences, that neuroscience isn't the silver bullet, but it certainly does give us some really valuable information. <laughs> Incredible, that and we to, would be so disadvantaged yeah, without. Yeah, yeah and, and so indebted to these authors, even providing good metaphor, very artistic ways of talking about some very complex brain studies around, hey, did you know that you're whole brain is organized around 
functionally connecting with itself mm -hmm. and the world through hyperactivation or hypoactivation. Yeah. One of the ways I sometimes think about neuroscience, and this kind of just came back up in my mind, uh, you know, there's an interesting conversation to be had about, did we, are we better as a species because we developed a light bulb? Hmm. You know, it provided incredible opportunity and ability, but the balance of that and what it meant for us as a working society, for instance, yeah. there are some definite negative side, yeah. you know, consequences. Yeah. So if we look at neuroscience in that way, there's incredible benefit, but it is not this savior mm -hmm. of insight and discovery. Mm -hmm. It is just another way that we are learning to orient to our world still as a developing species on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. To me, my my like breadcrumb to follow for listeners would be to to stay curious with sitting with their clients. What parts of the client feel very present, mm. feel very activated in session, and they're mm. processing in one way or another, and then or what, they're not at or all, or not, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what parts are just kind of missing, yeah. And what invitations or what sort of activities can you engage in to invite? novelty with mm -hmm. safety mm -hmm. and kind of be in that process of discovery together yeah what an incredible ego state work even to do of, oh yeah you know, personifying these large-scale brain systems too yeah. <laughs> as internal parts yeah. yeah and like to think that from some of its earliest constructions of a field therapy has always found itself discovering parts and trying to find integration you know if you're whole. talking yeah pre-Freudian neurology, you're talking Freudian structure, egoic, mm -hmm. super ego id, ego, like that, those are parts. three specialized parts that are seeking an integrated whole, mm -hmm. which is the self to like the most complex DID um, constructions of the self and yeah. uh, self-development. I mean, therapists have always been trying to seek integration of parts and I think it meshes so well with, with neuroscience. Yeah. Thanks for listening, Great beautiful listeners. Um, I can say that confidently. That confidently. You're beautiful. Yeah. Because Cause you're human. You're human. Um, Check it out. So thank you. Hey, also stay in tune and um, aware of different ways that we have to support. This listener-funded podcast. This listener-funded <laughs> podcast. Uh, spoiler alert, we don't have a millionaire sponsor that is just giving us money to do this we no. do this because we love it yes and we want to be engaged with other people who love reading research talking about it also talking about emdr at notice that and different other podcasts that we're doing but if you'd like to support us we do have a patreon page um, we're doing a lot of work and revamping that turning it into a space where we're going to start talking about art and healing uh, which is super super exciting um, and how neuroscience is an art mm -hmm. Ooh, there it is um but then there's also many other artists in the world talking about healing and health yeah. and how we can Super digest exciting. what they're saying so yeah. if you want to support please do we have a patreon page think beyond and uh stay tuned we got more episodes coming i believe the next one is on the cerebellum and subcortical networks Praise. don't quote me on that but <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure, sure. Yeah. it'll slip its way in. Well, <laughs> it will. It'll it get there does. eventually. Always yeah, yeah. does. Always does. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take care. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. 
If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast.